The head of Maui's Emergency Management Agency has resigned following criticism of his department's handling of the island's deadly wildfires. It's Friday, August 18th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, people in the northern Canadian city of Yellowknife have evacuated as firefighters battle approaching wildfires. Also, a growing number of conservative Americans say it's time for aid to Ukraine to end. Different surveys have confirmed waning Republican support. The facts, I think, are undeniable. And this hour, despite GOP opposition, the Biden administration's climate bill appears to be having a positive impact in Republican-led states. Nine of the 10 top states to be the biggest beneficiary of jobs are either red or purple states. Red Sox lose rain and thunderstorms today in the low 80s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Maui's emergency management administrator has resigned a day after defending his decision not to use the island's siren system during the deadly wildfires. Herman Nandea says he doesn't regret his decision because he says the sirens are mainly used for tsunamis. He says people would have headed to the mountains into the fire. Residents dispute that. Meanwhile, the burn zone in Lahaina is toxic. Officials are worried about asbestos and lead because of the age of the homes and businesses, along with other toxic chemicals in the ash and debris. And Pierre's Gabriel Spitzer has more. The biggest danger comes from ingesting or, or breathing in the toxic chemical. So that means that the really acute risks go way down once the fire's out and the smoke is dissipated. But lots of the emissions that start out as airborne particles and smoke end up settling back down into ash and soot, and they cling to surfaces, they run off into the water. And that means people could be exposed over and over for a really long time. And Pierre's Gabriel Spitzer. At least 111 people died. About 1,000 are listed as missing. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says this year could be one of the hottest in recorded history. And Pierre Shea Byram has more. Last month marked the hottest July since 1850. South America, Africa, and Asia saw record warm temperatures. Arizona, New Mexico, Florida, and Maine also experienced their hottest July on record. Now, about 30% of the U.S. is experiencing drought, says NOAA climatologist Karen Gleason. Drought conditions uh, expanded or intensified across much of the deep south and parts of the southwest, as well as in the northwest and extreme northern tier. Scientists say most of the U.S. will continue seeing above-normal temperatures through November. Shema Bayram, NPR News. North Carolina's Democratic governor will soon decide whether to veto sweeping elections legislation approved this week by the state's Republican-dominated legislature. From member station WUNC, Rusty Jacobs has more. The GOP bill would eliminate a three-day grace period for counting mail-in ballots postmarked by Election Day. Republicans say that would boost voter confidence in Election Day results. But Democrats in the North Carolina General Assembly note the grace period was established in 2009 through bipartisan legislation and that claims of widespread voter fraud are baseless. State Representative Robert Reeves worries eliminating the grace period could result in otherwise valid votes getting tossed due only to unreliable postal service. We are making it harder for people to have a voice. Governor Roy Cooper is likely to veto the bill, but Republicans have the legislative supermajority to override it. For NPR News, I'm Rusty Jacobs in Durham, North Carolina. U.S. futures contracts are trading lower at this hour. You're listening to NPR News.
Chinese property giant Evergrande has filed for Chapter 15 bankruptcy in the U.S. The Chinese company defaulted on its debt two years ago, part of a broader downturn in China's real estate sector that underpins the country's economy. And here's Emily Fang has more. Evergrande is filing for bankruptcy in the U.S. to protect its U.S. assets. It missed bond payments after racking up more than $300 billion of debt. Another major developer, Country Gardens, is in dire financial straits as well this month. Financial pain inflicted by ongoing Chinese regulation to cut down on inflated property prices and a business model predicated on debt. A third company, investment conglomerate Zhongzhi, is also facing liquidity issues and missed payments to investors. Investment firms like Zhongzhi are closely linked to the lending streams that once propped up property developers and local governments. China's real estate sector has generated huge economic returns in the last three decades in China, but also huge amounts of debt. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. Mortgage rates have surged to a 21-year high. Mortgage buyer Freddie Mac says the average 30-year fixed note now stands at 7.09 percent. This after the Federal Reserve aggressively raised interest rates as it tries to stem inflation. Economists say housing sales have slowed, but it's due to a lack of houses for sale. World financial markets, Asian markets were lower by the close. The Nikkei in Japan down a half percent. The Hang Seng down two percent. U.S. futures contracts are trading lower. Dow futures are down one tenth of a percent. Nasdaq futures are down about a half percent. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Massachusetts officials are expanding possible penalties for cities and towns that refuse to comply with a law meant to increase affordable housing. That includes denying grants to communities that don't fulfill requirements in the MBTA Communities Act. The law mandates that areas served by the MBTA create zoning that allows for a denser housing. Nearly 180 Massachusetts towns and cities must follow the rule. A new Boston task force is now meeting weekly with the goal of reducing gun violence in the city. Isaac Yablo is Boston's senior advisor for community safety. He says solutions to the issue go well beyond policing. What can we do to rejuvenate this area on a real-time level? That's also the difference. Is we're not leaving this meeting and saying, "Oh yeah, we'll implement whatever it is in two months." We're leaving it like, "Okay." We have our directives for the next few days for the for the weekend. Yablo says recent statistics show just four percent of city streets account for a hundred percent of community violence within the city. Three 18th and 19th century record books that contain information about at least 50 black people who lived in the Berkshires are about to be digitized. The records were owned by a family in Sheffield and are now part of the Trustees of Reservations collection. Nancy Cohn reports. The books are from the historic home museum of John and Hannah Ashley. Mumbat was an enslaved black woman who worked in their house. She later changed her name to Elizabeth Freeman after suing for and winning her freedom in 1781. Allison Bassett of the Trustees says once digitized, the 700 pages could provide details to historians about other black people in Sheffield. We don't really know much about the enslaved and the newly freed community living out in the Berkshires. You sort of find one name and you try and trace where did this person travel to, especially once they got freed. A grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities will pay for digitizing the books. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. 
Boston's Open Streets program comes to Alston-Brighton this weekend. Stretches of Harvard and Brighton Avenues will be closed to car traffic tomorrow for the pedestrian-only event. The Open Streets event takes place between 10 a.m. and 3.30. It'll include food trucks, performances, and art installations. It's 7.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lemelson Foundation dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. The Red Sox couldn't catch up to the Washington Nationals yesterday despite a late attempt at a comeback. At one point, the Sox trailed the Nats by eight runs. They closed the gap to just three runs, but it wasn't enough. Final score was 10-7. to The team now heads to New York to face off against the Yankees. That game is tonight at 7. Showers and thunderstorms likely this morning and into the afternoon today. We could see some small hail and gusty winds. Otherwise cloudy with highs in the low 80s. Tonight, a chance of showers, then partly cloudy and lows in the low 60s. Tomorrow, skies clear for a mostly sunny day with highs in the upper 70s. Sunday, sunny again with high temperatures in the mid-80s. Right now, it's 67 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Falden. President Biden meets today with the leaders of Japan and South Korea at Camp David. That's the famous presidential retreat in the woods of Maryland known as a scene for diplomacy. It's the first time since 2015 that any foreign leader is being invited there. And to get a sense of the significance of this meeting, I'm joined by two NPR correspondents, Asma Khadid. She covers the White House and will be going to Camp David. Hi, Asma. Hi there, Leela. And Anthony Kuhn from his base in Seoul. He'll bring us the perspectives from Japan and South Korea this morning. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Leila. So, Asma, let's start with the why. Why is President Biden having these, this meeting now? Well, he's really been wanting to strengthen alliances around the globe, and this, of course, plays into that. But Japan and South Korea are also very strategically located partners for the U.S. Uh, You know, much of President Biden's foreign policy is about countering China's influence. And here you, of course, have two countries that are key allies in the Indo-Pacific. That's right, Ozma. But let's remember that ties between these two neighbors have been in the deep, deep freeze in recent years. They've been mired in these historical trade and security disputes until this year when, with some nudging from the U.S., the two countries' leaders had their first summit in 12 years back in March. Now, President Yoon and Prime Minister Kishida both want to start a new chapter. They want to strengthen their respective alliances with the U.S., So they've begun to address these various disputes, and the U.S. wants to lock in the progress. They want to institutionalize the three-way cooperation while they've got these mutually friendly leaders in power. Mm -hmm. A lot to tackle here. Um, Asma, this is the first time in eight years that foreign leaders have been invited to Camp David. Why is it noteworthy choosing this particular setting? Well, I spoke to a former naval commanding officer at Camp David. His name is Michael Giorgione, and he's kind of been an eyewitness to history. He's seen various foreign leaders over the years come and go. And he told me that Camp David is just a really quiet, peaceful place to forge personal relationships. You know, it's about 60 miles outside of Washington. It's just this feeling of this rustic, pretty low-key mountaintop retreat in the woods of where people can just come and and talk to each other. That's the whole spirit and the aura of the place. 
And, you know, Leela, the camp has a more intimate feel than the formality of an official White House visit. It also has, of course, the gravitas that comes with its long legacy of diplomacy that dates back to FDR and World War II. Um, you know, there's this very famous photo of FDR meeting with the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Uh, they would go fishing, they would talk, and, and, you know, kind of map out what they envisioned the world would look like when World War II ended. Uh, then you fast forward to the Cold War when uh, former President Eisenhower invited the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev. Uh, and then, you know, I think many folks, when they think of Camp David, think of 1978 and this very famous diplomatic negotiation when former President Jimmy Carter invited the leaders of Israel and Egypt. That ultimately led to the Camp David Accords. And I will say that there is no doubt this White House is trying to tap into that 80-year history of diplomacy at this site. Um, by having it here at Camp David, it really elevates the relationship that the U.S. is seeking with Japan in South Korea. So they're sending a message with the location. Anthony, can the results of this summit hold up if there's political change in South Korea and Japan? Well, I think U.S. officials publicly admit that domestic politics in South Korea and Japan are the main challenge they face. But they also insist that Seoul and Tokyo have got to put aside their domestic politics, their historical disputes, and focus on present-day threats, such as China and North Korea. Now, it's not that South Korea and Japan aren't concerned about those threats or that they don't support their alliances with the U.S. They do. But uh, especially in South Korea, some people are not happy that, as they see it, Japan, they and not Japan are making the big concessions to break the ice with Tokyo. Now, I spoke to Che Unmi, a Japan expert at the Asan Institute think tank in Seoul, and here's what she said. I'm not sure the U.S. is neutral in this case, she says. The U.S. clearly wants to make the South Korea-Japan bilateral relationship fit its national interest. So she adds, for example, that while the leaders insist they're on, uh, they share the same values and interests, their priorities are in fact different. The U.S. and Japan perceive China as the main threat. South Korea's main concern is North Korea, with which is technically still at war. And that's why we're not likely to hear any pledge of military cooperation explicitly targeting China come out of the summit. Mm. Well, what are the specific commitments the three countries are making today, Asma? So they're announcing a commitment to step up security coordination. Uh, that includes more comprehensive military exercises, the establishment of a crisis hotline, and a pledge to consult each other in these moments of crises. Um, really, it seems like they're trying to establish an understanding that a security challenge for one country poses a concern to the other within this trilateral relationship. And they're trying to deepen the coordination to ensure that this remains a durable relationship. Um, moving forward, they say that they will meet annually. And Anthony, how could this summit impact the region, um, particularly the three countries' relations with China? Yeah, well, from Beijing's perspective, they see President Yoon and Prime Minister Kishida inching closer and closer to Washington on security and away from them, and they've warned their neighbors not to go too far. China doesn't want to drive Japan and South Korea further into Washington's camp than they already have, but they do want to stabilize ties, and because they perceive this summit as a hostile move targeting them, that putting a floor under ties might have to wait. That's Anthony Kuhn in Seoul and Asma Khalid in Washington. She's headed to Camp David. Thanks to you both. My pleasure. Thank you, Layla. 
U.S. military and financial support for Ukraine totals more than $100 billion so far. It's been a lifeline in that country's fight against Russia's brutal invasion. But a growing number of conservative Americans, especially in rural towns, say it's time for aid for Ukraine to end. As NPR's Brian Mann reports, this dramatic shift in sentiment is shaping the GOP presidential primary. In Tupper Lake, a tiny town in upstate New York, Stephen Whitley is loading his pickup truck. Asked about the massive flow of USA to Ukraine, he puts up a hand as if to say, stop. I think they ought to spend a lot more money at home and take care of our own people. Whitley's a white-haired guy who wears a pro-Trump t-shirt. He says Russia's invasion of Ukraine is none of our business, and he thinks leaders on both sides of the war are equally at fault. Well, they're both kind of bad people. You know what I mean? It's like two bad people. Let them take care of it. Initially, there was widespread Republican support for Ukraine. A Pew survey in May of 2022 found only 17 percent of GOP voters thought the Biden administration was doing too much to help the war effort. But polls conducted over the last year show a rapid shift. A CNN survey released this month found 76 percent of conservatives now oppose more U.S. funding and weapons. Different surveys have confirmed waning Republican support. The facts, I think, are undeniable. William Galston is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution who studied this trend. He says overall American support for Ukraine remains solid, especially among Democrats. But he thinks populism and isolationism are changing how many GOP voters see the world. This is an area where the America first rubber really hits the road. NPR interviewed conservative voters from small towns across the U.S. and heard this broadly isolationist sentiment again and again. Michael Wetter lives in Stewart, Florida. I don't think that they should be sending 30, 40, 50 billion dollars of there, especially when the man... Like a lot of people we spoke to, Wetter says he gets his information about the war from Fox News and other right-wing sources that regularly air views critical of Ukraine, including some claims that are false, like this debunked conspiracy theory. I've seen in alternative news sources that Ukraine was housing a bunch of biological weapons factories. Mainstream news coverage of the war has portrayed the brutality of Russia's invasion and Moscow's well-documented war crimes. But some of the most influential media voices on the right, including Tucker Carlson, paint a very different picture, describing Ukraine as a corrupt society led by a warmongering government. Ukraine is a democracy, we're told. That's why we're on the side of Ukraine. The problem is that is a lie. Ukraine is not a democracy. Ukraine is a corrupt one-party state. Until recently, Carlson was the most popular right-wing personality on Fox News. Conservative voters interviewed by NPR also said their views are influenced by Donald Trump, the frontrunner in the GOP presidential primary and the most high-profile skeptic on Ukraine aid. Appearing on Fox News, Trump promised to force an end to the conflict. I would tell Zelensky, you gotta settle. I would tell Most experts say forcing Ukraine into a peace deal now would mean giving major territorial concessions to Russia. But many GOP voters we talked to say they believe the former president. We didn't have no wars under Trump. We had strength through peace. James Batchelder from West Topsom, Vermont, said the right-wing media sources he trusts convinced him that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is corrupt, not a real ally. He's not a good person, just like any other dictator from a social communist country. Like In fact, want. Ukraine's not a socialist or a communist country, and Zelensky's not a dictator. Clifford Smith is a conservative foreign policy expert who's written about the Republican shift away from supporting Ukraine. 
Smith himself backs Ukraine funding and supports the Reagan-era vision of America playing a big role overseas, especially when democracies are threatened. But he thinks GOP voters have changed. It's certainly possible somebody very skeptical of helping Ukraine could get the Republican nomination, and that's that, that could be a disaster. Some Republicans have tried to push back against this isolationist sentiment and against these false narratives and called for more Ukraine aid. But the response among conservative voters appears tepid. Listen to how a crowd reacted last month when former Vice President Mike Pence delivered what was meant to be an applause line on Ukraine. He spoke during a campaign appearance in Iowa. A year and a half ago, Russia had the second most powerful military in the world. Today, they have the second most powerful military in Ukraine. All right, that's progress. Experts say halting or radically cutting U.S. aid would leave Ukrainians vulnerable, making it nearly impossible to defend themselves. It would also signal a lack of commitment to U.S. allies. But many of the small-town voters shaping the GOP presidential primary told NPR those aren't their top concerns. They said politicians should focus instead on problems like jobs, inflation, and gas prices closer to home. Brian Mann, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. You've made it to the end of the week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, as AI tools like ChatGBT become more popular, questions are being raised about whether the way the technology scrapes millions of pages of articles, books, and blog posts from the Internet is legal. It's 720. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Whatever your summer plans might be, maybe you're heading off to the Berkshires or the Cape or even, God forbid, somewhere outside Massachusetts, take me with you. Download the WBUR app and you'll have every episode of Wait, Wait at your fingertips. You can listen to WBUR live from anywhere and rewind if you missed something or just want to hear one of my bon mots over again. Get the WBUR app and never miss Wait, Wait. Showers and thunderstorms likely through about mid-afternoon today. Small hail and gusty winds are possible. Otherwise, it'll be cloudy with a high near 82. Tonight, a chance of more showers and thunderstorms and a low around 60. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and a high near 76. Sunny on Sunday with a high near 85. Right now, it's 67 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru who, along with its retailers, is partnering with AdoptAClassroom.org to provide funding to high-need schools and local communities for Subaru Loves Learning. Subaru, more than a car company. From Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Michelle Martin. There are good years and then there are great years. Rhiannon Giddens is having one of those. Rolling Stone just called her one of Americana music's most vital voices. Today, she released a new album that's been more than a decade in the making. But it's hard to beat what happened back in May when she found out that she'd won a Pulitzer Prize for her opera Omar. She was thrilled. Her kids, well, they took some convincing. And I was like, I got this thing, you know, called a Pulitzer. And, they're, and they were kind of like, huh, what's that? You know, and then my son went, oh, I've heard of that. It's in that Calvin and Hobbes strip. And he like quoted the whole strip to me. Oh. And I was like, OK, that was perfect. Yeah. It was like the perfect ending to this day. You know, it was so great. Rhiannon Giddens' opera, which she co-wrote with Michael Abels, is based on the real-life story of Omar ibn Said, a Muslim scholar from West Africa who was captured in 1807 and enslaved in South Carolina. And here is one who has seen a few years, but he's good for some work yet. While a slave, Ibn Said did something few in his situation got the chance to do. He wrote and published books, including an autobiography. Pretty heavy subject matter. But Rhiannon Giddens' new album is fun. It's got soul and country and blues, all sorts of classic American music. It's called You're the One. I went through a period of being inspired by, you know, some of the women that have always inspired to, like, write, you know, writing an Aretha Franklin response, writing a Dolly Parton response. So I said, after all this stuff that I've been so serious about, which is very important to me, but... Even just for my own spirit, I needed a little bit of joy. Let's start with too little, too late, too bad. hearing Aretha Franklin as inspiration here. Am I right? Bingo. It's just full of her sass and her, you know, I, who knows if she would have ever sung it or if it'd be, you know, it'd be anything close to something she'd want to sing. But, you know, it's our kind of answer to, hey, thanks, Aretha, for all the good stuff. There are a couple other songs that really speak to the classic country song. If you don't know how sweet it is, here I'm thinking about Loretta Lynn and Dolly Parton putting men in their place, and uh, in a nice way, of course. That's exactly it. I was listening to a lot of early Dolly Parton. Her first couple records, you're just like, whoa, she's just like not having any of it. So it's definitely a, a response to that. I heard you whine the other day, the dinner wasn't good enough. Just a little too loud The steak was just a little tough Your clothes weren't neatly folded You had to make the bed Well, I'm sorry for your troubles Just think on this instead If you don't know how sweet it is Get on out of my kitchen When you're writing these songs and when you're performing them, do you kind of, in a way, feel like you're channeling these artists or are you kind of putting your own spin on it? Well, it depends. All of those influences are already in me. There's no way I'm going to try to channel Aretha Franklin. But, you know, I'd say the one moment on the record where I really felt a particular person really come through the voice, not just the song that I wrote, 
um, was when I was recording Another Wasted Life. I definitely felt myself going into Nina Simone territory and, and I just let it happen. Another day, another youth. Another story, mango truth. Another Wasted Life. It's my understanding that it's inspired by a story that New Yorkers certainly know very well or people who follow the criminal justice system know very well. It's about Khalif Browder, who was locked up on Rikers Island as a teenager for three years on what turned out to be bogus charges that he stole a backpack. He was eventually released and exonerated, but the trauma was too much, and he took his own life. He's given solitary time institutional Whatever you've done or haven't done, that's inhumane. Then you have the fact that he was, wasn't even charged. He couldn't post bail because he had been on probation. It was just all the crap that goes along with how unjust the criminal justice system is and how it's not about rehabilitation. It's about how many people can we get in there and keep in there. It's just another wasted life. And when this opportunity came out to put this record out. I said, this has to be on here. And it's the one that I care the most about. I love all the songs, but that's the one that every time I hear it, I want to cry. I wanted to bring attention to it. And I wanted to say, we're all missing out with these situations because we're all losing these these brilliant people who are being put in cages and forgotten mm. about. You know, it's interesting that you have said that I need my work to bring joy in this moment because there is so much that does not bring joy. I was just talking about this, like, even as crappy as some people's lives are, you know, in this country, like, there's such inequality. We're so separated from each other in a lot of ways. And I think that music, art, culture, these are the things that we've always had as humans. We need more of that back, you know, in our lives. I just wish I could just wave a magic wand and we'd all... We'd all be singing together. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> all right. Well, so in preparation, because you're you're going on tour in support of the album, and also presumably to see all of us, your fans. So, um, what which song from the album should we practice in preparation for your tour? <laughs> <laughs> way over yonder. Okay. Way over yonder. <laughs> Rhiannon Giddens, her latest album is "You're the One." Thank you so much for talking to us once again. Thanks for having me. There's a place I go when I want to get away from the crowded streets and the long work days. The women are nice and the men are pretty. Cause I just want to get out of this city. It's a little bitty joint just out of town. Got the best fried chicken for miles around. Let's go. Let's go way over yonder. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. NPR's Planet Money team takes a close look at the Federal Trade Commission's recent record. The agency is the sheriff for big businesses, and recently its number of investigations has gone way up. It's 7.30. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Security issues involving North Korea and China are expected to be discussed today at Camp David. That's where President Biden is hosting Japan's prime minister and South Korea's president. A spokesman for China's foreign ministry was asked about the summit. Wang Wenbin is heard here through a BBC interpreter. 
No country should seek its own security at the cost of undermining other countries' security interests or undermining regional peace and stability. I believe the international community will see who is creating tensions or heightening conflict. The Asia-Pacific should not become a wrestling ground for geopolitical rivalry. The head of Maui's emergency management agency is resigning in the aftermath of deadly wildfires in Hawaii. Herman Andaya has been questioned and criticized for not sounding the island's warning sirens as strong winds fan the fires. He told reporters this week the sirens would have directed people directly into the path of the flames. The official death toll from the fires remains at 111. Travis DeWater says he and his fellow boat captain helped to rescue people from the ocean as the fire swept across Maui. Oh, it looked like a zombie apocalypse. Everything was on fire. Uh, everybody was just covered in soot. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A former Provincetown police detective is being accused of exhuming the body of the woman at the center of the notorious Lady of the Dunes case without legal authority. That's according to new documents obtained by WBUR. As WBUR's Walter Ruthman reports, Detective Meredith LeBur is also being added to a prosecutor's misconduct list. The FBI identified the Lady of the Dunes as Ruth Marie Terry of Tennessee last year, almost a half century after her mutilated body was found on a beach in Provincetown. Her body was exhumed three times over the years, including in 2013 by Detective LeBur. The Cape and Islands District Attorney's Office now says LeBur did not have, quote, legal authority to exhume the body and failed to alert state police. LeBur has been added to the DA's Brady List, a roster of police officers whose questionable credibility must be disclosed to defense attorneys. LeBur retired from the Provincetown Police Department last month. Her attorney said the accusations against her are a, quote, grotesque miscarriage of justice. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. A 10-year-old girl who had been hospitalized since she was shot in a Springfield home earlier this week has died. The girl and her sister were shot when a neighbor came into their home on Monday. Their grandmother and the suspect were also killed. Police say they're investigating the incident. Massachusetts officials are seeking public input on a new state seal and motto. The Massachusetts Seal and Motto Commission is in the process of a full redesign for both. Critics of the seal have condemned it as racist to the state's native peoples. The seal portrays a native man with a sword poised over his head. The online survey is available in a variety of languages. The Boston Herald reports the commission is expected to make a final recommendation to the legislature in November. Steamship Authority officials say equipment issues and human factors were to blame for a ferry drifting away from its mooring last month. The Falmouth-based boat slipped free and drifted for several minutes, eventually running into a dock. Leaders with the Steamship Authority tell the Cape Cod Times they're implementing procedural changes to avoid any similar issues in the future. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. The Red Sox lost their latest series to the Washington Nationals. The Sox were defeated in yesterday's game 10-7. to They now head to New York to play the Yankees. Tonight's game starts at 7.
Cloudy and low 80s today with showers and thunderstorms likely through about mid-afternoon. Tonight, the storms may continue as it falls to the low 60s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny Saturday in the upper 70s. And Sunday will be sunny, too, in the mid-80s. Right now, it's 67 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Michelle Martin. AI tools like ChatGPT scrape millions of pages from the Internet. News articles, books, blog posts. But is it legal? NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen has learned that The New York Times is considering a lawsuit that asks that question. And he's here with us now to tell us more. Good morning, Bobby. Good morning, Michelle. So let's start with this. Why is an AI tool like ChatGPT collecting so much data? Yeah, well, tools like ChatGPT only exist really because they're vacuuming up a staggering amount of data from the web really at all times. It's trained on the data of the internet, right? We're talking millions, likely billions of pages. Anything it could find is sucked up and used to make AI chatbots smarter. But from a legal standpoint, Michelle, there's a big issue, and it's this. All this data that's being scraped has been scraped without permission. So do the operators of chatbots have to ask for permission before hoovering up somebody's data? Yeah, you know, it really depends. For a lot of the internet, no, it doesn't. But, you know, when it starts scanning and processing work that is copyrighted, it does get trickier. We're talking books, poems, anything that is published online and someone owns the rights to. Now, I talked to Daniel Gervais about this. He leads the intellectual property program at Vanderbilt University, and he studies generative AI. So the machines are making a copy of the material before they process it. That could be copyright infringement. Gervais says what is produced at the other end, so the output, could also be copyright infringement. What are the consequences of that? The consequences could be quite serious. A court could order that ChatGPT's prized possession, its data set, be completely destroyed since it contains copyrighted material. A court could fine a company $150,000 per infringement. Gervais says a successful copyright lawsuit has the potential of really bankrupting a company since we're talking about millions and millions of instances of infringement. It's a sword that's going to hang over the heads of those companies for several years unless they negotiate a solution. You know, it would seem that someone would have thought of this before now. I mean, it's not exactly a secret that this is the way these chatbots work. Are solutions being talked about? Are they being negotiated? Yeah, in some instances they are, in other instances no, right? I mean, some publishers are trying to hammer out licensing deals with OpenAI behind closed doors so that publishers get paid. Others are not playing so nice. Comedian Sarah Silverman is suing OpenAI for processing her memoir without her permission. Getty Images is suing the maker of a tool called Stable Diffusion over use of its photos that they said was illegal. And I recently learned that the New York Times is considering suing OpenAI for using its stories and archives without permission and without any compensation. So before we let you go, what kind of defense does your reporting indicate that tech companies like OpenAI will likely be making? 
Yeah, they're expected to use something called fair use doctrine. And to really boil that down, fair use law allows someone or a company to use copyrighted material without consent as long as certain conditions aren't met. For instance, if it's used for teaching or research or criticism or news reporting, you know, this law is intended to encourage freedom of expression, but there are real limits on it. For instance, the Supreme Court has said that if copyrighted material is used to make something new and that new thing competes with the original copyrighted work, that is not fair use. And that's the position of the New York Times here and many other publications that ChatGPT is spitting out stuff that's becoming a replacement for its own stories, for reading articles on the New York Times website. And obviously that's a big problem if your company relies on readers and clicks and advertising dollars. That is NPR's Bobby Allen. Bobby, thank you. Thanks, Michelle. When Congress passed President Biden's signature climate bill, no Republicans voted for the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, a year later, the bill has spurred billions of dollars in investments across the country, and that investment has primarily gone to red and purple states, turning them into leaders in the manufacturing of green technologies. NPR's H.J. Mai reports. The small West Virginia town of Carneysville is about a 90-minute drive west of Washington, D.C., Workers are taking advantage of the cooler temperatures on this summer morning to install rooftop solar on a home. One of them is Aaron Milner. He works as a crew lead for West Virginia-based Solar Holler. Milner joined the company nearly a year ago, shortly after President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law in August 2022. Since I've come onto this company, I've like with the pay rate and everything and, and the opportunities, I, I like I have healthcare for the first time in like six years. I really plan to make a career of being in this industry. And Milner is not alone. The IRA, which includes nearly $370 billion in climate provisions, is set to provide new economic opportunities in many parts of the country, including West Virginia. Dan Conant is the founder and CEO of Solar Holler, and he says this type of legislation is critical for America's future. For the first time in my lifetime, the federal government is really promoting American manufacturing. West Virginia's economic fortune has been tied to the rise and fall of coal. But the state is slowly attracting new industries. A new battery production facility broke ground there in May. It will employ at least 750 people once fully operational. And West Virginia is just one red state that is seeing new investments and jobs because of Biden's climate bill. Jack Connors of policy firm Energy Innovation says the data shows as much. Companies have announced investments across the country of almost $280 billion over the past year. Nine of the 10 top states to be the biggest beneficiary of jobs uh, in their states are either red or purple states. Another example is Kentucky, where Toyota and others will invest billions in electric vehicles. But congressional Republicans, such as Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, unanimously opposed the bill. The only thing their inflation reduction plan will reduce is American jobs. Despite the investments across many red states, some Republicans, such as Alabama Congressman Gary Palmer, are still trying to roll back parts of the law, which they say hurt American families by raising energy costs. The misnamed Inflation Reduction Act contributed to these problems by establishing the so-called Greenhouse Reduction Fund, which is nothing more than a $27 billion slush fund for green advocacy groups. However, other Republicans have come around and are now taking credit for the investments flowing into some of their districts. Many Republican states are actually leading producers of renewable energy assisted by a geography of open land and a lot of sunshine or wind, while other GOP strongholds have a manufacturing tradition with an existing infrastructure and a skilled labor force, making retooling a production facility much more feasible, says Connors. Places like Michigan and Ohio, 
there is that already pre-built infrastructure. But even in the southeast areas of Georgia, South Carolina, Tennessee, etc., there's strategic locations there. For people like Milner, investment in green technologies could help ensure the future of communities, which in the past depended largely on fossil fuel jobs. It's so frustrating to hear these people, you know, poo-poo, like, solar and renewable energies. And I just don't see the logic of it because it's just one more feather in our hat to produce and make America more viable for companies to come to and just for, for Americans to thrive. This week, the president and vice president hailed such efforts as a success during events celebrating the one-year anniversary of the act. That administrative push, coupled with efforts in states like West Virginia, could mean that investments in clean energy jobs and innovation will continue. HJMI, NPR News. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR on this Friday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, an update on recovery efforts from devastating wildflowers in Maui, where the emergency services chief has resigned after criticism for not activating sirens during the disaster. Low 80s today under cloudy skies that will likely give way to showers and thunderstorms this morning and through mid-afternoon. The storms may continue tonight. It'll be in the low 60s. Then Saturday, skies clear for a mostly sunny day in the mid-70s. It warms up to the mid-80s on Sunday and will be sunny. Right now, it's 67 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Science. Maneuver through vibrant mind-bending illusions, 3D puzzles, and kinetic play at the new traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games. Tickets at MOS.org. And the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. Helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Informed communities, essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org. Somerville-based climate tech incubator Greentown Labs will soon be under new leadership. Kevin Knobloch has been named the company's new CEO. Before coming to the role, he was chief of staff of the Department of Energy during the Obama administration. He also most recently ran a clean energy consulting firm. Knobloch will start early next month. A Newton-based biotech company plans to use $155 million in new funding to finish a clinical trial. Abcuro says it will also use the money for hiring and to start work on a new drug to combat a form of leukemia. A Beacon Hill hotel is doing more to make sure its furry friends don't have a rough experience. Liberty Hotel has hired a new director of pet relations. 14-week-old English cream retriever Benny is taking on that role. Hotel officials tell the Boston Business Journal Benny's qualifications include a passion for tennis balls and a great tail wag. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. The chair of the Federal Trade Commission is facing increased scrutiny over some high-profile losses in antitrust cases. Our colleague Darian Woods at The Indicator from Planet Money takes a look. 
The Federal Trade Commission has two main functions, and one is to penalize companies that behave badly, like by lying to consumers. And the other is to stop companies from buying up other companies in a way that hurts competition. And that's been going way up under Lena Khan. The year she took on her role as chair in 2021, letters of investigation for mergers and acquisitions nearly doubled. We spoke to Tara Reinhardt. Tara worked for the FTC as the chief trial counsel for its Bureau of Competition. For all of us antitrust nerds, it's definitely an intellectual wonderland and, and full of supportive people and big thinkers. Tara is now a partner at the law firm Skadden. And Skadden is on the other side of the ring to the FTC. It represents the companies that want to merge. But Tara says the FTC is still near and dear to her heart. And she says at the core of that intellectual wonderland has been what's known as the consumer welfare standard. Business should be permitted to go out and grow through acquisitions as they see fit, unless the deal is likely to hurt consumers. The FTC and also the Justice Department are now rejecting that view, even though it's been the dominant principle for about 40 years. They want to reestablish the view that if a merger pretty much causes harm in any sector, including just to your competitors, then uh, the businesses should not be able to merge. So is it true that the FTC is on a losing streak? Because when you're driving towards a complete overhaul of how we think about monopolies over the last four decades, Tara says maybe we should expect some bold punts. The FTC has been bringing cases based on novel theories, cases where the courts have not had much experience with the theories of harm that are being thrown out there. One of the novel theories the FTC is pursuing is the idea of potential competition. That's what they argued when Meta was acquiring the digital fitness company Within. But to win that, the FTC needed a lot of evidence. Now, Meta is not a fitness video provider, but the FTC argued that if Meta does stake a claim in some kind of virtual reality world, like it's trying to do with the so-called metaverse, then owning within could stifle competition in digital fitness services in the future. There simply was not evidence that Meta had made plans, was considering plans. The FTC ended up losing in court, and Lena Khan was asked about this at the Economic Club of New York. And she framed that loss as actually a win, because the judge left open the door to that argument of potential competition. It's impossible to have one objective scorecard for the FTC. It is clear the FTC has managed to instill a degree of fear in the business community about new mergers. You just have to look at the opinion columns for that. But with tech giant Amazon next in the scope of the FTC, the agency's got its homework cut out for it. Darian Woods, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR News. Coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, West Virginia's largest university says declining enrollment and a growing $45 million budget deficit is forcing it to eliminate more than 100 majors. It's 7.50. 
It's been a year since President Biden signed major legislation to help address climate change. The Inflation Reduction Act is the biggest climate policy, climate action that the U.S. government has ever taken. We'll take a look at the Inflation Reduction Act and how it's reshaping the American economy and the fight against climate change. I'm Deborah Becker. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. The head of Maui's emergency management agency has resigned after being criticized for not activating emergency sirens during the deadly wildfires there last week. President Biden will host his counterparts from Japan and South Korea today at Camp David on matters of security cooperation. And Hurricane Hillary has now grown to Category 4 status and could reach Southern California as the first tropical storm there in 84 years. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. And the Masters in Applied Analytics at Boston College, flexible, rigorous, relevant, help manage data and insights to shape industry. bc.edu slash analytics. Cloudy today, and there's a good chance of rain and thunderstorms that may bring high winds and even small hail through about mid-afternoon. Temperatures will be in the low 80s. Tonight, more storms possible, and it falls to around 60. Then the sun comes out for the weekend. We'll have clear skies in mid-70s on Saturday, sunny on Sunday, and in the mid-80s. Right now, it's 67 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldil. Tomorrow marks the 70th anniversary of the 1953 coup in Iran that was fomented by the U.S. and the U.K. The country's democratically elected prime minister was ousted in favor of a pro-Western Shah, and it was the end of democracy in Iran. It then colored the 1979 revolution against the Shah with an anger toward the U.S. and the West. While the U.S. has acknowledged its role in the coup, the British government has not. Former British Foreign Secretary David Owen is now calling on the British government to finally admit its involvement, which has been further publicized by a critically acclaimed documentary film called Coup 53. We have the director of that film, Tahir Mirani, with us, along with former British Foreign Secretary David Owen. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. So, Secretary Owen, I wanted to start with you. In an interview this week, you called on the British government to admit its involvement in the coup. Why do you think it's important for the government to do that now, all these years later? It seems to cause some problem for some people that we've not formally admitted it. And I think the best way to end this controversy is to just say everybody's known about it for many, many years. If it helps for us to admit it, we're perfectly prepared to do so. I mean, it's a minor issue, frankly, and the history of it is pretty well known in this country, and nobody disputes it. Hmm. Mr. Amirani, why is it so important to tell this story? You worked on this film for 10 years. I mean, it's 70 years ago now. 
1953 coup isn't just something that derailed Iran's hopes for democracy, for oil, for BP's sake. It affected the region. It affected CIA's own sense of its own power. It emboldened them to go and repeat and rinse the coup in lots of other countries, 54 in Guatemala, many other countries across Latin America. It has scarred the psyche of Iranian nation. It may not matter so much to the British. You know, the victors forget the victims never forget. It's still a scar. And I think it'll, the truth can set the British free. It can clear the air. Britain has a problem of facing its crimes and its history. It's good for the soul of the British nation to come clean. Secretary Owen, do you think the situation in Iran today in 2023 under this repressive theocracy came to be because of that coup in 1953? No, I don't. I think it's takes a big stretch of the imagination. The Shah was already in office, and he continued, arguably a little bit more strengthened, but there was a, a continuity of his control. What changed Iran, I hope not irrevocably, was the rule of the Ayatollahs, which took place when the Shah left the country in 1979. Do you have the same view, Mr. Emirani? No, no. Uh, with all due respect, Lord Owen, the Iranian people see the revolution as a continuation of what happened in 53. It blew up. From the day Mossadegh came to power in 1951 till his overthrow in 1953, Iran had a tiny window, a tiny brush with democracy, a fledgling democracy. You're referring to the elected prime minister that was overthrown in 1953? Yes. And it'll be one of those what if questions, one of the biggest what if questions, what if that was allowed to develop? Where would it have gone? There's no question if the coup hadn't happened, if he hadn't been overthrown and the Shah wasn't put back in power, we wouldn't have had the 79 revolution. The cause and effect is undeniable. History has to be acknowledged. History matters. The causes matter. For a lot of Americans, Iran became a hot topic during the hostage crisis of 79, but nobody knew. The question was, why do they hate us so much? Why suddenly, out of nowhere? It didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of 53. Secretary Owen, you were the foreign minister in the 70s, in the last years of the Shah's rule and, and up until the revolution. If you could talk about the way that coup in 1953 had a lasting impact on the British-Iranian relationship. I don't think that it had much effect. It may have given Britain and access to the Shah, which we would not have had. The real problem with the Shah, he was in power, but not exercising power. Despite the failures of the past and the tense relationships, ups and downs between the US, the UK, and Iran, today, what do you see as the possibility with that relationship and even the type of support that growing democratic movements do need there from the West? if any support is needed? Well, I think there's a real chance. Uh, it's clear that President Biden's administration is trying to uh, get a situation where the past can be forgotten, or at least placed in proper perspective, and a new future. And so he's dealing with the hostage crisis. You're referring to the prisoner deal that just recently happened. Yeah, yeah. it's a very important. It's a hell of a big step. America's foreign policy matters to all of us, and we will not get peace in the Middle East, in Israel and Palestine, 
until we get the sort of dialogue that is starting to develop, which is Saudis talking to Iran and both talking to America. And just for our listeners, this is the deal that was reached um, with five American detainees who will eventually be allowed to leave Iran in exchange for getting access to $6 billion um, for humanitarian purposes. Mr. Amirani, I want to ask you the same question. How can both the U.S. and the U.K. improve their relations with Iran? The best advice I can give to Western powers and Western activists is actually do nothing. Let the Iranians do it themselves. If it's going to be long-lasting without any suspicion of foreign interference and meddling, it has to be Iranians for themselves. By far the most astute, most informed, knowledgeable, and smartest commentary comes from the young Iranians inside Iran. They're way ahead of everybody else. They know their history, they've read books, they know what to do. Any idea that change can come in Iran from outside is a mistaken idea and should just be stopped. Let the Iranians do it themselves. They have to gain it for themselves on their own terms, and they can. That's Coup 53 filmmaker Tari Amirani, along with former British Foreign Secretary David Owen. They joined me to talk about the 70th anniversary of the 1953 coup in Iran. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by BJ Lederman. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Michelle Martin. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The head of the Maui Emergency Management Agency has resigned after facing criticism for not activating sirens during last week's deadly wildfires. It's Friday, August 18th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we go to Ecuador ahead of presidential elections this weekend. The campaign was rocked by the assassination of an anti-corruption candidate. We're not just talking about any type of corruption. We're talking about the capture of parts of the state by organized crime groups. And the sour. They will be discovered, they will be arrested and prosecuted, and then this sort of crime will go away. Officials in L.A. are promising to apprehend mobs that have been stealing high-end merchandise from luxury stores. Also, a Provincetown detective has stepped down after being accused of improperly exhuming the body of the victim in the Lady of the Dunes case. Showers and thunderstorms today in the low 80s. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden hosts the leaders of Japan and South Korea at Camp David in Maryland today. China and North Korea are expected to get a lot of the attention at the talks. NPR's Franco Ordonia says this will be the first time Biden has hosted foreign leaders at the presidential retreat. It's also the first ever standalone meeting with Japan and South Korea after years of strained relations. Growing threats in the Indo-Pacific, particularly from China and North Korea, have thrust the nations together in search of more protection. At Camp David, President Biden, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, and South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol will participate in a series of bilateral and trilateral meetings. In the afternoon, they'll hold a press conference where they're expected to announce a new security pact. 
Senior administration officials say it's not a collective defense commitment like NATO, but the governments are committing to consult with each other on any posed threats, and policy responses will be made in tandem. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. The embattled head of the Maui Emergency Management Agency has resigned after defending his decision not to use the area's warning sirens as the wildfire approached. Herman Andea says it would have wrongly sent people to the mountains since that signal is mainly used for tsunamis, but critics dispute that. This is people who lost everything in the fires complain about the lack of state and federal help as they try to find a way forward. John Mills is with FEMA. He says the agency is there only to coordinate. It's important to remember the state is in charge. Maui County is executing the disaster response, and FEMA is coordinating federal support. So FEMA's not in charge and in no way taking over. Search crews have gotten to about a half of the burn zone so far, and the death toll stands at 111, but that is expected to rise. Russian authorities say there has been another drone attack on Moscow, with no serious damage or injuries reported. But as NPR's Charles Maines reports, it's the latest in a series of drone incidents that are unnerving city residents. Russia's defense ministry said its air defenses forced down what it claimed was a Ukrainian drone as it descended on central Moscow. According to the ministry, the drone attempted to avoid intercept fire and crashed into a non-residential building, not far from where two drones detonated in apparent attacks on a prominent business high-rise complex a little over two weeks ago. Following the latest incident, Russian authorities temporarily closed all four of Moscow's main airports and redirected incoming flights. While Ukraine has neither confirmed nor denied involvement, drone attacks on Moscow have become an increasingly common occurrence in recent months, forcing President Vladimir Putin to beef up the capital's air defenses. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. U.S. futures contracts are trading lower at this hour. Dow futures are down four-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ futures down eight-tenths. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Cities and towns that do not comply with a Massachusetts law meant to create more affordable housing could soon be denied state grants. State housing officials approved new guidelines for the MBTA Communities Act this week. The law requires municipalities to create zoning areas for denser multifamily housing. The state is planning to fine the energy company Eversource $1.5 million for safety violations. The fine stems from a 2021 gas explosion in a Maynard home that killed a man. WBUR's Barbara Moran has more. The state says that Eversource failed to properly classify, track, and respond to gas leaks on a street in Maynard for years before a house explosion there in 2021. The explosion killed a man who flicked on a light switch while inspecting a strange odor in the basement. Boston University's Nathan Phillips is an expert on gas infrastructure. He says the fine seems too low. The number and scope of violations was jaw-dropping, and the penalty seems extremely light. In a statement, Eversource called the explosion a tragic accident, but also says it disagrees with the state's findings. It can present its argument to the state within 30 days. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. A coalition of Boston business owners are calling on the city to build a recovery center at Wadent Circle for people in the so-called Mass and Cass area. The intersection of Melnia Cass Boulevard and Massachusetts Avenue is known for incidents of drug use and violence. City and state officials tell the Boston Globe they're open to the proposal. Wadent Circle is currently owned by the MBTA, which plans to use it as a train yard for commuter rail. It was once the proposed site of an Olympic stadium.
Cambridge will begin a major restoration of its city hall starting this fall. The building was completed in 1890. Its restoration will include masonry repair, new lighting installation, and an application of gold paint to the historic clock tower. The project is expected to take about 15 months to complete. It's 8.06. WBUR supporters include the Lodestar Foundation inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. The Red Sox fell short again in their series against the Washington Nationals. The Sox did their best to make up an eight-run deficit at one point in the game. They still fell short by three runs. Final score was 10-7. to The Sox now turn their focus to the Yankees. The teams face off tonight at 7 in New York. Showers and thunderstorms likely this morning and into the afternoon today. We could see some small hail and gusty winds, otherwise cloudy with highs in the low 80s. Tonight, a chance of showers, then partly cloudy and lows in the low 60s. Tomorrow's Skies clear for a mostly sunny day with highs in the upper 70s. Sunday, sunny again with high temperatures in the mid-80s. Right now it's 67 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldil. In a few minutes, our colleague A. Martinez talks to L.A. Mayor Karen Bass about a new law enforcement initiative. But first, we go to Maui, where more than 100 people are known to have died from wildfires that destroyed the historic Lina community. More than a week later, the slow and careful search for the dead goes on. Efforts to help survivors have ramped up, led largely by volunteers. And in the midst of the recovery effort, the head of Hawaii's emergency management agency has resigned. NPR's Greg Allen reports. At a shopping center, one of the few areas that escaped the fire in Lahaina, cars lined up Thursday. Working with more than 100 volunteers, local officials have helped organize a large aid distribution center. Many whose homes were destroyed have found temporary quarters in the area, often doubling up with friends. Hawaii's Governor Josh Green says nearly 1,500 people are being housed in hotels and Airbnbs. Kupapalau Agepa and his family are staying at the resort where his father works. He says they barely escaped the fire with their lives. The smoke started coming in and then there was no evacuation notice. So if me and my family would have stayed five minutes, we would have had burned in that house. How'd you the, realize? The black smoke and then my uh, friend, he told he came to my house and he told us we should leave. And then, then we dipped. Palau Agepa says they jumped into his father's truck as the fire spread through their neighborhood. Like at the bottom of our road, it was just on fire. And then in the middle of the road, there was a tree connected to the power cables. So it was blocking us. My dad kind of had to like ram through it. Many survivors say they heard about the evacuation order from neighbors and have questioned why the island's emergency sirens never sounded. On Thursday, the head of Maui's emergency management agency, Herman Andaya, who had been steadfastly defending the decision not to use the sirens, resigned. 
citing health issues. As questions swirl about the lack of warning and inadequate response, it's not clear yet how many died. The burn zone, covering more than 2,200 structures and 2,000 acres, is closed to all but search and rescue teams. That's led to questions about the slow pace of recovery. At a news conference, Maui County Mayor Richard Bisson asked the media and the public to be patient. We continue to search for loved ones who are unaccounted for. We know the community wants us to move quicker, and we will continue to get better at what we're doing, and again, sending more volunteers and more workers to the west side. Maureen Palud is a forensic anthropologist at the University of Nevada, Reno, who worked on recovery efforts following the 2018 fire in Paradise, California. She says searching burn sites for remains is a slow and painstaking process, with crews using trowels, brushes, and screens. Because you want to make sure that you recover as much as possible. You know, you want to make sure that the family gets a full accounting of their loved ones. After remains are recovered, they are then sent to a lab where they're identified using forensic techniques and DNA analysis, all of which, Palud says, takes time. That work will be done to make sure that we're positive that it's this person. More than a week after the fire, some residents in Lahaina are growing resentful about what they see as intrusion by some in the media, especially those intent of getting shots of and access to the burn zone. One of them is longtime West Maui resident Catherine Wall. The ash is in the air. Those are bodies. You're walking in a graveyard, a live graveyard. Be respectful. In the Paradise Fire, in which 85 people died, identifying the victims and notifying their relatives took months. To aid in the identification in the Lahaina Fire, federal and state authorities are asking family members of those who are missing to provide saliva swabs for DNA sampling. Greg Allen, NPR News, Maui. The Los Angeles area is getting hit by another series of so-called flash mob robberies targeting luxury goods stores, including Gucci and Nordstrom. Videos which have quickly gone viral show groups of robbers ransacking retail displays and grabbing tens of thousands of dollars worth of high-end merchandise. Police say they're putting more officers on patrol, and Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass, who spoke with our colleague A. Martinez earlier, told him the LAPD is also joining with other law enforcement agencies in the region to form an organized retail crimes task force. We are not treating it as organized crime in the traditional sense in terms of like the mafia, but what is clear is that this is organized. You can't go in and have a group of people, 20 and 30 people, who all get out of their cars at the same time, all go on to the stores. There might be connections between the groups. This is what the task force will establish. Now, when you spoke to NPR back in April, you mentioned how you've been studying crime trends for the last three decades, that crime cycles go up, come back down. From what you've seen, Mayor, what factors cause crime to go up? One of the traditions is that it's summer and it tends to be that crime kicks up in the summer. And uh, what I certainly hope and assume is that this is going to be uh, an anomaly. I'm just speculating that what we will find is that we have a couple of organized groups that are doing this. They will be discovered, they will be arrested and prosecuted, and then this sort of crime will go away. Besides summertime, though, Mayor, what's behind, you think, these specific crimes? Not just luxury goods, but also, at least recently, we've seen reports of gunpoint robberies of small businesses like food trucks and taco stands around the city. Well, I do think it's important to separate the crimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think those are crimes of 
of opportunity. There are also lower level crimes, as you can imagine, how much cash would be in a taco stand. And obviously those are terrible and need to be addressed. But the type of retail theft we are talking about, where you are stealing goods, where a purse might cost $15,000, $20,000, we need to look at the online platforms where these goods are being sold because you're not taking Gucci bags for $10,000 and selling them in neighborhoods for two or 300. These individuals are putting these items online and selling them for a lot of money. We need to find out which online platforms are receiving and selling stolen goods. And those platforms need to be held accountable as well. Mayor, do you have enough police officers to patrol and protect business owners and the people who patronize them? No, we don't. I mean, Los Angeles, the number of officers are down. Uh, We are now below 9,000 officers, and we haven't been that low in over 20 years. That is why we've raised funding. Uh, We've just uh, finished negotiating a contract with the union that goes before the city council next week. We're providing incentive pay to encourage people to join the department. And so uh, we do need to expand the force. But I don't believe that that is a reason why these crimes are happening. There's not organized retail theft because the numbers of officers fell below 9,000. Mayor, these videos paint a very scary picture. So what do you want business owners, shoppers, diners, and tourists to know about how safe they are in Los Angeles? Well, what I want them to know is that they are safe in Los Angeles. Crime trends show crime going down. However, when you have a spectacular type crime happen like this, it does create a sense of fear. But one of the reasons it does is because it's exploited by the press and especially the conservative press that wants to paint Los Angeles and many other Democratic run cities as though we are in a crisis of crime. And that is not the case. That is the mayor of Los Angeles, Karen Bass. Mayor, thank you. Thank you. An ocean heat wave off Florida is stressing coral to the point where they release life-sustaining algae turning white. It's known as coral bleaching. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration said Thursday coral bleaching has now reached reefs off eight countries. But scientists in Florida rescuing coral off the reef this month did get some rare good news. Some of the rescued corals made babies in their lab. WLRN's environment reporter Jenny Stiletovich met up with one of the scientists working to save the coral. On a muggy South Florida night, coral scientist Andrew Baker cranked up the love songs at his University of Miami Rosensteel lab. Baker was hoping to get coral rescued from steamy waters and now safely stored in outdoor tanks in a more amorous mood. Well, yesterday. Since the heat wave began in July, bleaching has spread across Florida's reef and offshore nurseries where coral are grown to restock the reef. Baker and other scientists rescued thousands of still healthy colonies and stashed them in labs from Tampa to the Keys. We don't normally have this many corals in tanks, and the reason we have it is because of the rescue operation. Dive teams brought Baker dozens of milk crates piled with coral pulled from a nursery the week before. He and others are trying to preserve genetic diversity, and they're trying to protect years of work breeding coral to withstand oceans warmed by human-caused climate change. Spawning season began in early August. Now Baker hopes to save some unborn coral. So 
in a sense, it would be better if these were out there on the reef, but it might be more, ironically, more difficult to collect spawn from them. Coral spawn like fish by releasing eggs and sperm into the water to fertilize. That happens just once a year. Five years ago, scientists figured out how to get the coral to do that in the lab, a major feat in their efforts to outpace warming oceans. Baker is hoping to get the coral to spawn again on this night, but after a half hour with no action, he switches to Marvin Gaye. And within minutes... We got spawn! Oh, Thank you. Wow. <laughs> nice. Someone hold the light over the, right over the spawn. Where were they? Students and other researchers locate the tiny pink sacs using red lights and big droppers. So each one of those little dots represents dozens or, or possibly even hundreds of eggs. And it's all bundled together with sperm. Some of the sacks will be separated and frozen, and some will be raised and replanted on the reef once the heat wave subsides in the coming months. So what was that magic song? It was your precious love. Yeah, Marvin Gaye, Tammy Terrell. Now NOAA scientists worry coral bleaching could spread across the globe. So Baker hits play again. For NPR News, I'm Jenny Stiletovich in Miami. And now I've got a song to sing. Tell the world. This is NPR News. Good morning, Arupa Shanoi. You've made it to the end of the week with WBOR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Canadian fire crews are battling wildfires that are approaching the northern city of Yellowknife, where all 20,000 residents were ordered to evacuate. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Biologists and volunteers are racing to restore California's iconic Joshua trees as climate change and fires threaten their survival. Unfortunately, restoring Joshua trees is more of an art than a science, and sometimes it works out really well, and sometimes it doesn't. I'm Elsie Chang. The future of Joshua trees in California's Mojave National Preserve, on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. We have some patchy fog this morning, and showers and thunderstorms are likely through about mid-afternoon today. Small hail and gusty winds are also possible. Otherwise, it'll be cloudy with a high near 82. Tonight, a chance of more showers and thunderstorms and a low around 60. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and a high near 76. Sunny on Sunday with a high near 85. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. Share your thoughts about what you hear on WBUR by taking our listener survey. You can tell us what you want to hear more or less of. Find it now at WBUR.org slash survey. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com 
From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. A budget crisis at West Virginia University has prompted the school to propose scrapping its world language department. The proposal comes in response to an estimated $45 million budget shortfall. But in a news release, the university also said that student interest in the program is low and declining. Chris Schultz with member station WVPB has this report. To save money, West Virginia University is looking to cut 32 majors and completely dissolve its world language department. But the language programs have been bringing in more than they spend, says Lisa DiBartolomeo. My department also really contributes deeply to the service mission of the university. DiBartolomeo is a professor and supervisor of the Russian Studies program. She and others are questioning the review process and possible impact of the proposed cuts. We teach a lot of students. And I don't think that the provost office and the administration are fully aware of the ramifications of closing the language program at a university like this. With no language program, the university is also considering dropping language requirements for all majors. DiBartolomeo says it's unthinkable a university of this size would not offer any language courses whatsoever. If we are allegedly equipping our students to go out into the world and to have successful careers, And yet we're not educating them in means of communication with people from other countries and other backgrounds. We are failing them as a university. West Virginia University is the state's land-grant university and its largest. In recent years, state government funding dropped, as did enrollment. Meanwhile, the university made investments like construction and taking over hospitals. The proposed cuts were announced just days before the start of the fall semester as students return to campus. Cortez Blount is a freshman from Washington, D.C. He's a business major and had his eye on a minor in languages. But now, since languages are getting cut, it's kind of like, got to keep my decisions limited. Blount says if the cuts go through, he may be looking elsewhere for his degree. I give it my sophomore year, and if things that isn't changing, then transfer might be an option. The programs and classes on the chopping block would continue through at least May of next year. The university's final decision on cuts are expected in September. Students like sophomore Gabby Cotton are dismayed by the proposals, but she doesn't feel like there's much she can do about it. There's a lot of like advertisements for cultural diversity and stuff, but they're kind of going back on that now with that literally being cut out. I mean, I'm still going to go here. I mean, I'm a broke college student. I don't really have a lot of choices. Deans and faculty of all affected programs have until today to file an appeal with the university. Protests are planned on campus for Monday. For NPR News, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown, West Virginia. Time now for StoryCorps. One of the first sit-ins of the civil rights era happened at a drugstore in Oklahoma City. It was 65 years ago this week, and it was staged by children. Ayana Nazuma was just seven when she took part, and at StoryCorps, she recalled how an NAACP Youth Council trip started it all. We took a trip to New York on a Greyhound bus. And we see white people and black people checking in the hotel. 
and people at restaurants that are eating together, and we are freaking blown away. And so that's when the thought of having a sit-in came to mind. The adults agreed that if children did it, then folks are not going to be as violent. And so a boot camp was created. It's almost like when you're going into the military, they would never send guys into a war without preparing them for all the possibilities. And there were some kids that wanted to participate in the sit-ins, but their parents said no, it was too risky. But my mom volunteered to drive us. On August 19, 1958, I'm seven and my sister is five. And 13 of us walked into Cat's drugstore and sat down at the counter and asked, may I have a hamburger and a Coke, please? I had on a little white dress. The boys had on trousers, dress shirts, and we brought some coloring books. And so there we were, these little African-American children taking up all the seats. The waitresses were not happy about it. And the customers were not happy. And sometimes you heard the N-word. But we stayed until they closed up the store. The second day, it was the same thing. That third day, we walked in. Still, may I have a hamburger and a Coke, please? And they said yes. The thing about Catch was they were in Arkansas, Kansas, Missouri, some other states. And after that third day, they opened all their restaurants up to African-American people. But we continued to sit in until 1964 when the Civil Rights Act was passed. So we went to many restaurants between the time I was 7 to 14 because in spite of the fact that we were asking for a hamburger and a Coke, really, we were asking for respect and dignity. And I try to explain to children how important their voices are because the rights that you have are the same rights that I have, even if you're seven years old. We shall not, we shall not be moved. Ayana Nazuma in Oklahoma City. The Cat's Drug Store sit-in inspired four college students known as the Greensboro Four to occupy a Woolworths lunch counter in North Carolina in 1960. This interview is archived at the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture and the Library of Congress. We shall not, we shall not be moved. We shall not. Shall not be moved like a tree that's planted by the water. We shall not be Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru, who along with its retailers is partnering with adoptaclassroom.org to provide funding to high-need schools in local communities for Subaru Loves Learning. Subaru, more than a car company. And from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later. Because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. We're fighting for our freedom. We shall not be This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition. WBUR's Walter Wuthman brings us the latest in the long-running Lady of the Dunes case. A Provincetown detective has been accused of improperly exhuming the body of the victim. 
It's 829. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service, and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers, and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The director of Maui's Emergency Management Agency is stepping down with Hawaii's death toll from wildfires at 111. NPR's Greg Allen says the resignation comes amid questions about why the island's warning sirens weren't sounded as winds fan the flames. Herman Ndaya has taken sustained criticism from the public and questions from reporters about why, as the fire spread, the island's siren system never sounded to warn residents to evacuate. At a news conference Wednesday, Ndaya was asked if he regretted not using the sirens. I do not, he said. The sirens, as I had mentioned earlier, is used primarily for tsunamis, and that's the reason why Many of them are found, almost all of them are found, on the coastline. Sounding the sirens, Andaya said, would likely have sent residents fleeing toward the fire, a statement many here reject. Maui Mayor Richard Bisson announced Andaya was resigning for health reasons, saying, given the gravity of the crisis we are facing, my team and I will be placing someone in this key position as quickly as possible. Greg Allen, NPR News, Maui. Urban search teams using dogs continue looking for human remains in the charred rubble on Maui. Roughly a 1,000 people are still unaccounted for. Freddie Mac says mortgage rates in the U.S. are at their highest level in more than 20 years. The average 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is nearly 7.1%. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A former Provincetown police detective is accused of illegally exhuming the body of the woman at the center of the Lady of the Dunes case. Documents obtained by the by WBUR show retired detective Meredith LeBur was added to a prosecutor's misconduct list as a result. The victim was found near the beach in 1974. LeBur's attorneys deny the allegations. WBUR's Walter Ruthman has more on the story coming up in about 15 minutes. Boston City Council President Ed Flynn is denying that he leaked an internal complaint regarding alleged bullying by some of his council colleagues. The complaint reveals allegations by staff counsel Christine O'Donnell. She accuses counselors Ricardo Arroyo, Kendra Laura, and Julia Mejia of bullying and berating her during an April meeting. Arroyo has denied allegations of bullying. Laura and Mejia haven't commented. A Boston Globe investigation found leaked photos of the complaint were geotagged from the street Flynn lives on. A New Hampshire sheriff is being investigated for misuse of county credit cards. Mark Brave was arrested yesterday. Investigators allege Brave stole nearly $19,000 in county funds. They also say he lied under oath. Brave says he plans to fight the charges. He's the state's only black sheriff. The 155th Marshfield Fair kicks off today. Leonard LaForest is president of the organization that sponsors the fair. He says there will be live entertainment, animal exhibits, a petting zoo, and plenty more. There's a large kids ride area. Anything you can imagine for food from chocolate-covered Oreos to a 
filled with ice cream. On top of having fun, LaForest says he hopes fair attendees walk away with a greater appreciation of agriculture and horticulture. Fair gates are open daily from noon until 10 p.m. through August 27th. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software. Powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. It was another loss for the Red Sox last night in D.C. They lost to the Nationals 10-7. Losing that game means they also lost the series. The Sox remain on the road to face off with the Yankees. The first game of that series starts tonight at 7. Cloudy and low 80s today with patchy fog this morning and showers and thunderstorms likely through about mid-afternoon. Tonight, the storms may continue as it falls to the low 60s. Tomorrow, a mostly sunny Saturday in the upper 70s. And Sunday will be sunny, too, in the mid-80s. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Fadel. The 20,000 residents of Yellowknife in Canada's Northwest Territories are under evacuation orders as wildfires approach the city. Yesterday, cars stretched for miles along the two-lane road out of town as residents tried to flee. Those who couldn't leave by car waited hours for chartered flights out of the area. This has been the worst wildfire season ever recorded in Canada. There are now more than 1,000 fires burning across the country. Jamie Dahl is with Canada's Global News, and she joins me now from Yellowknife. Good morning. Good morning. So firefighters have been battling this wildfire for over a month. How far away is it from Yellowknife at this point? The last update we received, it is about 15 kilometers, nine miles from the city limits of Yellowknife. But with these dry, warm conditions, lack of rain and the unpredictable winds, fire officials are concerned that it could be on the doorsteps of this capital city as early as Saturday. Hmm. This evacuation, it's a massive undertaking, a city of 20,000 people in two days getting everybody out. How's it going? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's tall order, something that nobody here has ever gone through. We have been seeing lots of people uh, lining up outside an evacuation center where they're to register for a flight out to the southern part of Alberta. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people waited in line for hours yesterday, you know, with their children and their pets and sitting on their suitcases, only to be told at the end of about four hours or five hours for some that they were to go home, uh, there was no more flights, and to come back uh, this morning. So the we did speak with the uh, Premier of the Northwest Territory who said at least 3,000 people were airlifted out yesterday. Um, But of course, they're hoping that number to grow. The evacuation is going slow and steady. I'm pleased that so far people remain calm on the roads out. Uh, We have lineups at the people that need flights, uh, but we're trying to organize it so we can stay open as long as we can fly. We'll keep people going. 
Now, the government's providing facilities for people who decide to shelter in place. Have you spoken to anyone who is staying either voluntarily or because they can't leave for one reason or another? Yeah, we have spoken with um, a lot of, you know, frontline workers, people that have to stay here, some hospital workers, as well as, of course, the firefighters, but also government officials. But then there are people that have just decided on their own to stay. Now, the Great Slave Lake is um, right here. And some people are just hoping that if, you know, things get really dire, that they're just going to jump in their boats and maybe go camp on an island somewhere until things settle down. Now, the mayor and the premier, everybody dissuading uh, against that, primarily because there's not going to be any services available. And in case anyone gets into trouble, and that's just going to be putting more stress on the first responders that are still here. I mean, how common is this now, this evacuation's happening? How much is climate change exacerbating the threat of wildfires? Is this becoming a new normal? Yeah, you know, like I've listened to the fourth fire that I've covered this season that people have been evacuated from. I myself was evacuated while on summer vacation just a few weeks ago with my family. So unfortunately, I think this is the new reality. There are a lot of old growth forests in Western Canada with a lot of uh, deadfall fuel and as temperatures warm. This is what we're going to be seeing. That's reporter Jamie Dahl of Canada's Global News. Thank you, Jamie. You're welcome. This weekend's presidential election in Ecuador is making news for all the wrong reasons. It was once a relatively quiet corner of South America, but one of the candidates was just assassinated. His successor now wears a bulletproof vest and helmet even to TV interviews. Violence and crime fueled by international cocaine cartels has rocketed to the forefront of voter concerns. And Paris Kerry Khan has this report. Vendors like this woman selling nail clippers for a dollar dot the downtown street of Ecuador's largest port city, Guayaquil. And many, like 63-year-old Narcisa Paredes, tells a producer there with NPR that she just doesn't feel safe anymore. Every time I step out my door, I ask God to watch over me because these days we live in a very violent country, says Paredes, who sells cigarettes and cosmetics to passers-by. The city, home to the biggest port in the country, has been hit hardest by Ecuador's surging crime. International cartels from Mexico and even faraway Albania have turned it into a transit hub for cocaine brought from Colombia and Peru. It's then shipped to the U.S. and Europe as corrupt authorities look away. Paredes says she was heartbroken when less than two weeks before the election, 59-year-old Fernando Villavicencio was gunned down right after a campaign rally. She says he was the only one standing up to the thieves ruining her country. Via Vicencio, a former investigative journalist, made a career of exposing Ecuador's dirty politics, especially during the presidency of leftist Rafael Correa. After time in exile for his own safety, Via Vicencio returned and won a seat in Congress. Before his assassination, he had said a local drug boss tied to Mexico's Sinaloa cartel had threatened him. His longtime friend and fellow journalist, Christian Zurita, has taken over the campaign in the presidential election. 
Yo eh, puedo asegurar todo eh, para depurar las organizaciones. Eh, Speaking eh, on a nightly news show, Zurita wearing a bulletproof vest under his dress jacket says he promises to clean up Ecuador's security forces, fight the criminal gangs and their protectors in honor of his fallen friend. Seven others are in the race, including the frontrunner and only woman from the main leftist party. There's also an environmental activist and a conservative lawmaker running on a tough security platform. Whoever wins will have an uphill fight against Ecuador's entrenched crime and political corruption, says Will Freeman, a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. We're not just talking about any type of corruption. We're talking about the capture of parts of the state by organized crime groups. The roots of which go back several governments, says Freeman, including this last one of President Guillermo Lasso, which was paralyzed from political battles in an opposition Congress ready to impeach him. He has not really made any meaningful progress on, you know, reversing this increasing criminal capture of ports of the police of other uh, state authorities. So I think there's there's blame all around. Humberto Salvatierra, a 52-year-old gas station attendant, is fed up with politicians and the violence. He's not sure yet who he's going to vote for. Yo le digo que yo deberían de, como dice, entrar a la presidencia y actuar ahí. I just want someone to come into the presidency and do something, he said. If none of the candidates gets a majority of votes, the top two will go to a runoff in October. Kerry Kahn, NPR News. This is NPR News. You're listening to WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report marks the final match of the Women's World Cup with a look at the business of women's sports. Low 80s today with some fog this morning. Cloudy skies will likely give way to showers and thunderstorms through mid-afternoon. The storms may continue tonight. It'll be in the low 80s. Sorry, low 60s. Then Saturday, skies clear for a mostly sunny day in the mid-70s. It warms up to the mid-80s on Sunday and will be sunny. Right now it's 68 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. And AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use. ALPrime.com. Cambridge-based Moderna says its updated COVID vaccine is effective against the latest variants. That includes the current dominant EG5 variant. It also covers the other variants currently surging in parts of the U.S. Moderna says it expects the new vaccine to be available in the coming weeks. Layoffs are underway at Cambridge-based Biogen. The company is cutting a 1,000 jobs in what it tells the Boston Business Journal is a complete redesign. It's unclear how many Massachusetts workers are affected. Biogen laid off nearly 1,000 workers last year. Stocks for Rhode Island-based CVS are down after Blue Shield of California announced it is dropping CVS as its only pharmacy benefits manager. The insurance company says it instead plans to partner with Amazon and Cost Drugs Plus. Blue Shield says the change will save $500 million each year. It says CVS will continue to provide pharmacy services for its patients with complex conditions. It's 844. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. We have an update this morning in the story of the Lady of the Dunes, a woman who was found dead on a Provincetown beach nearly five decades ago and finally identified by the FBI last year. The Cape and Islands District Attorney's Office is now accusing a longtime Provincetown police detective, who recently retired, of exhuming the victim's body without legal authorization. Meredith LeBur has been added to the Cape and Islands District Attorney's Brady List. That's a list of police officers whose questionable credibility must be disclosed to defense attorneys. WBUR's Walter Wuthman broke this story and joins us now. Good morning, Walt. Good morning. Would you mind starting us out by reminding us of the basics of this case? Yeah. The Lady of the Dunes was a long-running cold case. In the summer of 1974, a woman's body was found in the dunes off Race Point Beach in Provincetown. Her body was mutilated, her hands were cut off, and there was evidence she was sexually assaulted, possibly after she died. There were many dead-end investigations until last year when the FBI, using investigative genealogy, identified her as Ruth Marie Terry of Tennessee. Terry's body had been dug up from her grave multiple times over the years in hopes of identifying her. That included an exhumation in May 2013 by Provincetown Detective Meredith LeBur. And documents we received from the Cape and Islands District Attorney's Office indicate that she may have performed that exhumation illicitly. Okay, so illicitly, meaning she didn't have permission. That's right. According to an investigation by Massachusetts State Police detectives, LeBur proceeded with the exhumation without lawful authority to do so. Cape and Islands DA Robert Galliboys sees the allegations as serious enough to put LeBur on his office's Brady list. These are lists of police officers accused of misconduct that must be turned over to defense attorneys as potentially exculpatory material. In a letter to the Provincetown Police Chief last month, Galliboys wrote that LeBur's conduct is, quote, subject to mandatory disclosure to criminal defendants as probative of how the officer conducts police investigations. What do we know about what actually happened? It's hard to say exactly because many of these documents are redacted and we don't have the full state police investigation. But I did speak with someone who observed the exhumation firsthand. Boston-based science writer Deborah Halber wrote about the Lady of the Dunes for a book about cold cases called The Skeleton Crew. She got a tip about LeBur's 2013 exhumation and drove out to the cemetery in Provincetown to watch. Here's how Halber described Detective LeBur exhuming the grave. She was actually handling the items that were being handed up from the bottom of the grave herself. Uh, She handled them herself and then handed them off to the people, again, who I assumed were um, representing the medical examiner's office. Halber said Detective LeBur later called her and grilled her about how she'd been tipped off and whether she was going to write about what she saw. Halber told me she left with a really weird feeling about the whole thing and wasn't surprised to hear prosecutors now say it may have been illegal. Okay, so what does LeBur say? I called LeBur yesterday and she told me she didn't do anything improper. Her lawyer followed up with a statement which reads, It is a grotesque miscarriage of justice that the current Cape and Islands district attorney put her on a list suggesting she did something wrong in solving the Lady of the Dunes. And there's another wrinkle here. LeBur retired from the Provincetown Police Department last month, soon after being added to the DA's Brady list. 
but she already got a job a couple towns over as a seasonal harbor master in Wellfleet. It's not the same type of law enforcement, but she is tasked with enforcing marine rules and regulations. When I asked about that, Wellfleet's town administrator said he didn't know about the allegations against her. Last year, we did a big investigation about this process, how police officers who get pushed out of one department often end up finding work at another nearby. So we're seeing that dynamic at play again here. So interesting. Thank you for the update on this. WBUR's Walter Wuthman, thank you very much. Thank you, Rupa. WBUR. It's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on the traffic jam on the single highway that leads out of the northern Canadian city of Yellowknife, where residents have been ordered to evacuate because of advancing wildfires. They'll also have reaction to the International Chess Federation's decision to ban transgender women from competing at women's events. It's 8.50. On this week's Wait, Wait, Cindy Lauper tells us about a mild disagreement she once had with a friend. I turned over the table and I pulled on his beard and hit him with my purse over the head. I'm Peter Sagal. We promise no harm will come to you from this week's news quiz. Also with Brian May from Queen, dancer Misty Copeland and the geniuses behind Southside. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. President Joe Biden hosts leaders from Japan and South Korea at Camp David today in hopes of forging mutual security arrangements. Parts of the southwest are preparing for heavy rains from Hurricane Hillary, which has strengthened to a Category 4 storm. And Maui's emergency management chief has resigned following criticism that his agency failed to sound sirens during the deadly wildfires. In your forecast, the National Weather Service has issued a tornado warning for parts of southern Massachusetts and Rhode Island. That includes the area of Attleboro, Mansfield, Franklin, and Providence. Weather officials say quarter-sized hail is possible. The alert is in effect until 9.15 a.m. People in the affected area are being told to take shelter in a basement or in an interior room of the lowest floor of their building. Otherwise, we have fog and clouds this morning, and there's a good chance of rain and thunderstorms that may bring high winds and even small hail through about mid-afternoon. Temperatures will be in the low 80s. Tonight, more storms possible, and it falls to around 60. Then the sun comes out for the weekend. We'll have clear skies in mid-70s on Saturday, sunny on Sunday, and in the mid-80s. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. A new sign of China's economic weakness, this time in a New York City bankruptcy court. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab understands that wealth management is personal. That's why Schwab offers flexible, personalized financial planning crafted for their investors' individual goals. Learn more at schwab.com. I'm David Brancaccio. The Chinese property giant Evergrande has filed for bankruptcy protection in the U.S. 
Evergrande is struggling under a mountain of debt, and the move in the U.S. lets the firm safeguard its U.S. assets as it continues to work on a new deal with creditors around the world. Evergrande is the second biggest property company on earth and the world's most indebted company. The BBC's Nick Marsh reports from Singapore. Evergrande is the best known of several floundering Chinese property developers. Two years ago, it defaulted on some of its $300 billion worth of debt. Since then, it's made a loss of a further $80 billion. Millions of people across China currently have their money tied up in unfinished property. In fact, a quarter of China's economic activity is accounted for by real estate. The industry saw rampant speculation until a couple of years ago, but then the money dried up after the government put limits on how much companies could borrow. Nick Marsh in Singapore is with our editorial partners at the BBC. Markets S&P futures are down seven-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ futures are down now nine-tenths of a percent. Thirty-year loans to buy a place to live are now the highest in more than two decades. It was 2002 the last time the average 30-year fixed rate loan was above seven percent, although interest rates are settling down slightly just this morning. Marketplace's Nova Safo is following this. Mortgage rates are moving in tandem with the 10-year Treasury yield, which has been climbing on the assumption that a strong economy will force the Federal Reserve to keep interest rates higher for longer than previously thought. Now, mortgage rates are at highs not seen since the early 2000s, when they were coming down off an 8.5% peak. Of course, home prices back then averaged the equivalent of $290,000 today. The current national home price average is $410,000 because inventories are low and homeowners are locked into low-rate mortgages and are reluctant to sell. This is making homeownership more difficult for many would-be buyers. Existing home sales are down nearly 20% compared to a year ago. New home sales are up 24% because builders can entice buyers with discounts. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. Mortgage News Daily calculates the average 30-year fixed mortgage at 7.37% going into this morning. The Mortgage Bankers Association uses a different method where it's 7.16, but you get the idea. Two years ago, the 30-year fixed was below 3%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. Learn more at c3.ai. This is Enterprise AI. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. Final contest of the World Cup is set to kick off Sunday, Spain versus England for champion. This has been a success for the growth of the women's game at the global level. And the business of college sports in the U.S. is a key ingredient. That's the view of Victoria Jackson, a sports historian at Arizona State. She spoke with my colleague, Sabri Benishore. So the U.S. women's national soccer team is really strong, best in the world for a long time, despite I know they had a disappointing exit from the World Cup this year, but we don't need to talk about that. But one reason the U.S. could produce such a strong team is that it has a strong college sports system for women in soccer. Can you put the U.S. system into context? Like how strong is our system as systems go? We have a development ecosystem that is unparalleled, unmatched. There's nothing like it that exists anywhere else. This is a multi-billion dollar sports industry run by higher education. It's something that is for both men and women athletes. 
and it's across all sports. And the infrastructure that we have in this system is best in world, so the world's athletes come here too. How did we get that? Where did this strong investment in the women's college game come from? Well, it's the result of kind of crashing of historical forces. None of this was intentional. So the first is, you know, that the sport played in the U.S. is American football and athletic departments are built up around that sport. Then we have, you know, enter stage left Richard Nixon, who signs into law Title IX of the Educational Amendments of 1972, a gender equity and education law. But because we have sports built into our school system in the U.S., what it creates is the equal opportunity to play school sports. So in the U.S., unlike the rest of the world, we have a law that mandates equal opportunity to play elite level sports. With all the money running through intercollegiate athletics, we've seen this grow over time into the world's best sports system. And you make the argument that that has sort of had spillover effects for players in the rest of the world. Can you describe how that works? Yeah, so if you are a promising young teenage athlete, literally anywhere in the world, <laughs> and you wanna become the best you can be and you look around at what your options are, one of the best places for you to develop into that world-class athlete is through American colleges. So at this Women's World Cup, we have 151 players, more than 20% of the athletes in this tournament came through American colleges at some point. 22 of the 32 national teams have at least one player who developed through American colleges. Obviously, great players are made with obviously natural talent and great training and great system they participate in. But what about when they go home? Does the U.S. sports system translate in any way to the home countries of these athletes? Soccer is the world's game, but it's also became the world's game for men. So these big men's clubs only in the past decade or so kind of came around reluctantly to the fact that, oh, we could be building women's soccer and developing athletes in the way we do for our men's clubs. So we're starting to see the world's players developing through domestic club leagues really for the first time in women's soccer in places like England and Spain, you know, two of the nations who are now meeting in a World Cup final and will be crowned world champion for the first time. Neither of these countries have been world champions before. Victoria Jackson is a sports historian and professor of history at Arizona State University. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Sabri. I'm David Brancaccio's Marketplace Morning Report from APM American Public Media. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.